Hello, I am Sarah Winchester, and welcome to Awakening Your Health Potential, the podcast. I bring you awakening conversations from experts, practitioners, and thought leaders in a wide area of health, from body, mind, and spirit topics. None of these topics are meant to replace any medical advice that you've been given, and many of them do not have any scientific validation. They are there merely to expand your mind, deepen your intuition, and encourage you to take responsibility for your health and wellness journey. Now it's time to listen, learn, and enjoy. Welcome everybody to another Awakening Conversation. Today we have a fascinating conversation with Indra Rainpoo, who was coach for one of the women's beach volleyball Olympic teams in Sydney 2000 Olympics. But the thing that I find really fascinating about Indra is his work in the shamanic realm as well. So welcome, Indra, to this conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Pleasure. So let's, let's, let's start with your, your work in, in volleyball. And, and, and the most amazing thing is that it is Olympics time now, so it's perfect timing. So tell, tell us about how you got into volleyball and, and where it all started. Yeah, my um, family is Estonian um, and the Northern European nations were responsible really for bringing the sport of volleyball to Australia. Um, when all the migrants, including my parents, came here as refugees of the Second World War, one of the things they'd done a lot in their homeland, but also in the in the war refugee camps and the relocation camps was play sports like volleyball. So um, I was dragged as a 13-year-old, pretty well kicking and screaming to play volleyball for the Estonian club in Adelaide. I really wanted to play AFL, but um, <laughs> volleyball was the thing that all the young Estonian people had to play. At that time, this... When was that? That was... When did you say, sorry? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, 1975. Okay. And at that time, as an indication, five of the national Australian men's team were Estonians. Wow. Which is astonishing. And a lot of the others were, um, you know, Ukrainians and and from other nations like that. And uh, so I played as a junior, represented the state, um, and then uh, sort of got a little bit jaded with the whole thing. I wasn't really good enough or tall enough to play at the highest level. So I went and did other things. Um, and then um, you know, my interest in human performance, uh, particularly our, um, our potential with our mind, uh, became very interesting to me and particularly how it affected sporting performance. Mm. Um, and so I started investigating that and learning more about that. And having played my junior volleyball with the National Beach Volleyball head coach, um, he uh, got me involved with the teams leading up to the Sydney Olympics in 1997. I also did a lot of work with the Heathfield High School Volleyball Program, which um, has been the most successful school sports program in the country in any sport. Wow. Um, Is this all in South Australia? This is all in South Australia, yeah. Uh, Yeah, the National Program for Beach Volleyball was based in Adelaide and oh, still right. and so um, I was recruited to start 
working with the teams in the areas that the technical coaches didn't have the knowledge or experience to work in, but they knew it was really important because um, the issues between players, some of the interpersonal uh, relationship things, motivational factors were affecting the performance of the teams on the international circuit. Mm. And there just wasn't enough sports psychology capacity and resources available to really make a difference. So um, I was involved to work with the human aspect of the players rather than the athlete aspect of the players. And, and you know, like we know today, like how little there is between, you know, being top, top and the next couple down. And, and really it's like the skill level is pretty equal when you're at that level, but it's like we said just before we started recording, it's, like it's the human aspect, the day-to-day stuff that, that changes rapidly, which affects their, their performance. Yeah, and yeah, once you're in the ballpark of elite competition, there are obviously teams that are perhaps more talented overall and more skillful overall, but um, what they can deliver in any given moment is the thing that determines how successful you'll be. And you know, we just look at the, the sports where um, lower-ranked teams unexpectedly beat top-ranked teams, and uh, you know, how does that happen? Because mm-hmm. skill doesn't change overnight and fitness doesn't change overnight. And even though these days things uh, related to sports psychology and motivation are much more acknowledged as being um, significant and influential, still most of the time and resources is directed towards skill development, fitness development, mm. uh, and those aspects, which, again, you know, they get you into the ballpark, but when it comes down to it, that's not what will win you the grand final. Mm. So then, so you did this pre-Olympic sort of prep with, with some of the beach volleyball teams, the men's and women's? Yeah, so initially I was working with the overall squad and travelling on the International World Tour, which was an astonishing experience. Mm. Uh, Wonderful and and enormously stressful as well. Mm. Um, And then... What was stressful about it? Well, for these athletes, you know, they're preparing for the Olympics, which is their sports pinnacle. Uh, And in their eyes at the time, certainly the pinnacle of their lives. Mm. And some had been preparing for... 10 years or more Mm. for this one opportunity. So they were putting everything on the line. They they were, their social lives, their relationships, their finances, everything went into second place um, to allow the best possible preparation for the Olympics. So when things didn't go well, when people had different points of view, um, when things got hard, when injuries came along, uh, the emotional toll on the players was very high. And again, they didn't have experience often to deal with it and neither did the coaches. And when we were on the other side of the world, living in a strange place in a hotel room with strange food and no one speaking the language, there's not a lot of support around um, mm. if, if you end up in trouble. Mm. So is that where you came into it? Was it like just managing those relationships and and the emotional needs or what, what, how did you, that was your kind of role? Yeah, it was, um, for me, what the, the people involved with the sport needed was, um, you know, their strength and foundation need to come from their self-concept rather than the situation around them or even the people around them. And, you know, that's usually where most of the, 
work is done to make sure that um, you know the environment that they're working in is is strong and positive and um, and people have uh, what they need and that's true and that's good mm. but in the end when you, you know when you face your demons you stand there alone um, mm. in that critical moment and if you don't know who you are if you don't believe in who you are and if you don't know what your journey is then you will falter and uh, you know some of us walk away run away some of us just give up some of us lash out um, inevitably we look back on those moments and often have regrets because it's not a reflection of who we are or who we want to be but it was the best we had at the time so you know my role as I saw it was to help that best we have to be better and uh, you know to require much bigger stresses before we trigger into those poor responses and I guess you know when you are under those very very high pressures that is when those kind of default patterns and the the filters are down and and there's stuff that if it's going to come up to really upset things that's when it will come up yeah you would have you would have seen it like kind of come up pretty easily I would imagine it's the same for all of us you know when we're conscious and in the moment you know the best of us comes out because we're thinking about it or we're we're conscious of it yeah. But um, when we get pushed too far because of, you know, stress or fatigue, exhaustion, mm. then we do return to those old defaults from a, a lower consciousness level. Mm. Um, and then the subconscious patterns take over, which are, you know, defensive usually. Uh, they're designed to keep us safe, safe and surviving. Um, and they don't really care about the collateral damage they cause in that moment. They're unaware of it. Mm. Um, and you know the challenge was to stay more conscious in those moments so we could make better choices and again again program in better defaults mm. um, because in the heat of battle in uh, in elite sport there's no time to think and reflect it's it's what comes out in that moment that determines what happens and you know at the moment we're still in the the COVID pandemic t- pandemic where lots of people are very stressed and kind of in a lot of default patterns and not very conscious. So what are some like strategies you use to help? I mean, that whole reprogramming of the default mechanisms would be, well, is extremely valid. How did you, I mean, there's lots of different ways that different practitioners will do to do that. How did you approach that and, and, and help reprogram those default matters so they had another, another way of defaulting to? Yeah, I think the first and most fundamental thing was to um, fly in the face of what is the overarching message of that time, which was we need to win. Mm. All the resources, all the expectations upon the Australian teams in a home Olympics was that, you know, we need to be successful. That was within the sport because the sport itself was struggling for its identity and as a nation, course we want to put on a, a successful performance um, and in sport you know it's the winners that get the sponsorship the winners get selected the winners get the idolization um, successful coaches get contracts uh, and if you don't win you're gone people um, forget about you very yeah, very quickly so, and that's enormous pressure and stress um, 
Was it with Sydney? Was the first Olympics of beach volleyball was in as well, wasn't it? Or was it not? Uh, no, I remember. No, there was uh, in 1996 in Atlanta. Oh, that was the first one. That was okay. the first one, and yeah. uh, in that one, the Australian women's team won the bronze medal, hmm. um, which was a, a big step for the sport. But in, in light of all that, uh, the challenge with the team that I ended up working with, it was, um, it's a cliched thing now of focusing on process rather than outcome, but we took it a step further and really focused on who we were as people and who we wanted to be as people and the role models we wanted to be and what really mattered. Uh, and when I when I asked the, the two women in my team to put together a like a, a vision statement of what they wanted, um, you know, my expectation was that somewhere near the top would be to qualify for the Olympics, which was our first goal, and then secondly to win a medal at the Olympics, which they were capable of knowing. And they came up with 11 criteria for their journey um, and qualifying for the Olympics came in at number nine. Wow. Uh, everything else was about the things we'd been talking about and working on for the previous months. They wanted to have the strongest relationship. They wanted to feel and express and demonstrate courage and, you know, to to show their family and friends in the world who they really were in their hearts and, and to find out what's possible and to make every step a learning step. And um, wow, how amazing. What an, yeah. like, how insightful. Mm. And, you know, it was, for me, it was a match made in heaven. The team I coached previously was a nightmare. That was one of the team, one of the players I ended up with and also one of the other players who went on to win the gold medal. But as a pair, those two were polar opposites night and day and they just fought all the time. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, so it was very hard. But the team I ended up with, they were very aligned. They'd both been to American colleges at the same college, so they knew each other. They were great friends. Oh, right. Um, and they were very compatible with the ideas that I had. So they were really like sponges. They wanted to grow as people. And they saw that the whole Olympic journey was uh, one of the best opportunities to do just that, grow as a human being, because you know, you're constantly tested, there's constant feedback, and all we need to do is get out of our heads that the winning and losing matters. Mm. Um, and that's hard in the environment we were in. Okay. Because every day was about winning and losing. Yeah. Um, and, and we ranked and who's in front and who's behind yeah. and... Yeah, um, and it's it's very hard, you know, when you keep losing, not to start to think that it means I'm no good or I'm not good enough or I'm a failure. Mm. Um, but, you know, we had a, a good deal of success with that whole process and it meant that the team I coached, you know, they started off being ranked about 20th in the world um, about 15 months out from the Olympics and uh, ended up in the top five. Um, last weekend was the, the 20th anniversary of our silver medal in the Berlin Championship where um, that was probably the, the high point of their entire journey where they displayed astonishing volleyball. They still lost the final, but, you know, I've never been more proud of a team and they were just, they embodied everything we'd been working on and, and took it to the best team in the world and uh, it was just a, a classic match up and all four women at the end were completely exhausted um and you know if I ever want to have a moment to show the world what sport can be mm. that would have been 
um, the match to show because it was just incredible. Uh, and yeah, we, we didn't quite recapture that in, in Sydney, but um, just to have that moment, it's, it's uh, something really special and rare. Yeah, beautiful. How amazing. So little did you know that all, all that work you were doing was kind of what you you kind of what you do now, but you have more idea of what you were doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I'm now I've, uh, I, I work still with sporting teams, particularly in the school sector now mm. um, and in the corporate sector as well with building teams. Um, and I work here on the Central Coast as a shamanic practitioner. Um, and the, the key thing there is that uh, in shamanic practice, it's all about uh, finding our place in the natural world and feeling us as part of that and, and using the, you know, the way of the natural world to serve as a guide and to learn who we are and what our journey is. Uh, and the challenge is then to um, transform that wisdom into something that is practically useful in a sporting context, in a business context. Um, and I grew up in the Adelaide Hills and, and spent all my time in national parks anyway. And so I was doing that without even knowing no. what I was doing and without labelling it anything in particular. Uh, and I guess the, the athletes and teams that I worked with always had the benefit of that. Um, you know, the other people around me always saw me as different, but... Uh, not different enough to think I was completely weird. So I, you know, I was still able to uh, have opportunities to work mainstream. And I think that's the, the, the blessing I've had is I've, I've been able to literally have a, work, a foot in both worlds. I can be a bridge between alternate and unusual ways of thinking and the mainstream because I can relate fairly effectively to both camps. Mm. Um, I feel a bit like that as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been able to kind of bridge that and help people bridge that connection of like what it means to be a human in the practical world and what it means to be connected to your higher self and 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 nature and yeah, it's a really it's a I think it's a extremely important balance for life, for health. And a lot of people don't have that that balanced very well. You know, it's either one or the other and they don't know how to get the other without, you know, going to the extreme. And it's, it's just like being able to sit in the middle um, is a really great place to be as a practitioner. Like, like you said, it's pretty special. Yeah, you know, with, in the shamanic work, we work with four realms of our humanity, you know, the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just following on from what you said, um, so many people have their focus in one or two of those areas, and that's where they live. You know, I just started going back to the gym here in in uh, in Erina, and you see all the guys that are at the gym every day. You know, they're in good shape, and they're strong, and they're big, and and they're talking about their supplements. And you know, there's, there's no judgment on that, but it's you know, you can see it's kind of at the centre of their lives for most of them. Mm. I go to the gym, I want to be strong and, and healthy as well, but it's it's just one aspect of it. Yeah. Um, well, working with it, working with athletes. So if we go back to that on that on that note, 
athletes, it's very easy for athletes at a high level to be all about, like you said, it's like the skills, the training, the physical, what they're putting in the body and then the other things kind of just are not so important. And that's where they kind of, that's where they get out of bounds, often where they get injuries and overtrain and all that kind of stuff as well. So if you can then put into context like those four kind of realms and how that would fit with, you know, a high-performance athlete or someone who's focusing only on the physical like a a bodybuilder or someone at the gym like that or even the corporate world because that's all very physical as well. So how do you you bring in like the mental, emotional, and what did you say the other one was? Physical Physical, and spiritual. Spiritual. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some context, even using the word spiritual is not going to um, necessarily be a positive thing. So I need to be mindful of how I address that. But what type of words do you use? Well, you know, I talk about, well, in some places I don't, you know, it's just that, it's just that unseen sense. And we, we talk more about being mindful and yeah. And seeing if there's a door that can be opened up to the possibility of the unseen and the unknown. Okay, Uh, yeah, yeah. In the end, whatever the context, it's it's about um, seeing if it's possible to demonstrate to the participants, whether they're athletes or business people, that, um, you know, if we bring all of you, the individual online, every aspect of you, then that has to bring more resources to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may have a very powerful, focused mind, but, you know, if you're ignoring your emotions or not able to control them or work with them, then, again, there's a vast resource there that isn't being used. And where things are very competitive, it, it's often it is possible for people to grasp that if they can see practical examples of it, of, of where it has been successful, Yes. That's where it's useful to have the sporting stories where people can relate to um, to what success really is. And we can pull examples where there have been athletes in a variety of sports that have used other aspects of their being, not just, you know, extreme physical talent, mm. to be more successful than others. Yeah. Um, and... And if people want to improve and get better, they're also more receptive and open, right? It's like if they're looking for what's going to, you know, help them or give them the edge or then they're usually more open to what are, you know, either what are other people doing or what are other people not doing that that I can can do as well. Yeah, well, they're, you know, extremely competitive, so they're looking for that little bit of an advantage. The, The other side of that coin is that, Often uh, people will reach for anything that might help so they can hook onto some quite wacky, um, you know, unproven, whether it's technologies or practices that don't help. Um, and so something like, uh, you know, authentic shamanic practice, and what you know, very few people really know what that means, but they lump it into the same bucket as a whole lot of other, uh, you know, woo-woo, new age ideas that uh, aren't always uh, very authentic or useful because, you know, people are attracted to them and they go do a weekend course somewhere and suddenly they are a shaman. Um, And it gives uh, others that are attempting to be more authentic with that a bad name and and 
you know, tars all of us with the same brush. It's yeah. you know, I imagine the same in chiropractic because oh, so in South Australia there's been some practitioners who have given the, the profession a terrible name. Mm. And and before registration as well, one of the reasons why chiropractic got such a bad name in the very beginning was because there was no registration for chiropractors in Australia. So, you know, like, for example, my grandmother saw a chiropractor, you know, like she would be probably 110 now. So I don't know, in the 60s or 70s, 60s probably. And um, and he'd, he'd trained in America and he'd come out to Australia and and he told her that he had someone come into the practice and say, oh, you know, what are you doing? Show me what you're doing. And he showed him a few things and he literally set up shop a few doors down the road mm. as a chiropractor. So, yeah. you know, like the, the beginnings of, of, of chiropractic, when it, there was no registration, there was no rules and, yeah, dangerous things, dangerous things happened. But, yeah, it's the same in any, in any profession, in, in any realm really, you know, there's people who do fantastic work and there's people who really shouldn't be doing that sort of work at all. Yeah. Mm. So tell us more about, you know, like how you, so you were talking about the four aspects before I interrupted you before. So tell us more about each of those, each of those um, concepts. Well. Um, so the physical. Yeah, it, it's, it's, whether the context again is sport or or just general life. Um, well, let's think about let's talk about general life at the moment because again, yeah. people, you know, where people are at with this COVID pan- pandemic is it's really triggering a lot of fear, collective fear in people, and and people are feeling very stuck and out of control and all that kind of stuff. So maybe we can use it in that context. Yeah, it, it for me it comes back to asking the question in any given moment. You know, what really matters. Um, and for many people, that's a question that we're just incapable of answering because we're so programmed to be, as you say, triggered or upset or um, focused on so many things that don't matter. You know, right now there's so many conspiracy theories and so much misinformation about the coronavirus going out there. For the average person, it's impossible really to know what's true and what isn't because... You know, there are aspects of the media you can't trust. Social media, there's so much rubbish on there. But because, you know, there's clever people with access to powerful tools, the truth and absolute lies are almost impossible to to distinguish. Mm. So um, irrespective of what's going on, you know, what matters is getting clear on what our life values are Mm. and pursuing those and seeking to find out, you know, what is the most authentic and real expression of my potential, what's mm. possible for me at a physical level, at an emotional level, mentally and, and spiritually. And, uh, you know, in the shamanic practice, we talk about following the path of our heart, which can, can sound a little bit airy-fairy, but it, it's really about um, each day stepping closer and closer to that full and complete authentic expression of ourselves um, and discovering what it is in our conditioning, our upbringing, our beliefs that take us away from that authenticity because we all have so many entrenched and enmeshed beliefs that we've learned from our childhood and, and life since then that uh, take us away from our potential. You know, those little voices that say, 
I can't do that because I'm too old, too young, too inexperienced, uh, too short, too tall, not enough, not smart enough, not wealthy enough, don't have enough time, what will other people think? And, you know, all those things are true in our lives, but the question is what really matters in the big picture um, and the, another thing is it's difficult for many people to move between the momentary day-to-day detail of what's going on, the busyness, what we call ant world, where everyone's just rushing around dealing with what's on the plate, the urgent stuff, and then creating enough still time where we can consider what's important, the big picture. Um, and it's not just goal setting because you know, that's, again, just based on specific objectives. It's, it's, it's allowing that space to, to discover what our journey is. Uh, and that's not an airy-fairy concept at all when we no. start working with it. Um, but, again, our lifestyles do not support the opportunity to take that journey very often. And, and so can, the journey into nature particularly is, is a, a way of just being still, having a little bit, bit of space, observing nature and and just allowing things to settle in rather than the the just constant distractions of yeah well it's you know my i never work in an office i see if, if we can get out into a park somewhere wherever possible and the first step is to start working on breaking down this um this barrier that everyone has that you know i am different to nature and when I go there, even if I love it and appreciate it, I'm still just visiting. Mm. Um, because in reality, we are just as much as part of that nature as the tree, the stone, the creek, the kangaroo. But it doesn't feel like that. Mm. You know? And so ceremonially within the shamanic realm, we, you know, we, we do things where we physically, we make sort of mental, emotional concepts that are a little bit fuzzy and nebulous. We bring a, a symbolic example of that into the physical so we make it easier to manage and manipulate so we'll literally you know get into the dirt take our shoes and socks off get into cold water let the rain fall on us sit there and listen and listen and listen and until the mind becomes quieter and it will rebel because you know, again this isn't right it's you know it's not what my mother brought me up to be what my I'm feet- cold my feet are dirty I'll yes. get in trouble when I get home yeah if someone comes and sees us, they think we're crazy. We're going to get arrested. Um, but in the end, it's 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 finding our place in nature as part of it. And when we can actually do that, and the mind becomes a little bit quieter, and we accept our place in it, then it's almost like nature accepts us back. Mm. And then we can start to hear what it has to to teach us and share with us. And there's a resonance that forms from, you know, be it a tree or a rock or whatever, we can learn from it. And it's not at a conscious level. It's it's much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps us create that place where we start feeling more natural within ourselves, within our own skins. Um, and then we can start asking ourselves those questions, of, you know, who am I really? What am I here for? How can I take the next step? Uh, what does it mean in the context of my current life? Mm. Um, what's your most memorable or life-changing moment in nature that you can think of 
Hmm. I've just had one come to me. That's why I'm asking you. Okay. Um, well, I guess well, the training I did with um, with my shamanic work um, in the years, particularly 2015, 16, in the Central Desert in the Northern Territory, we did um, ten day modules on the Hugh River, which is the second oldest river geologically in the world. It flows into the Fink River. And, uh, you know, out there, there's no phone reception. We had a group of about 20 people and, uh, you know, sort of semi-desert, um, undulating land. And the nature of the, the study, if you like, was, you know, we talk about something for half an hour and then we had the rest of the day to either do some sort of activity around it and just sit with it. So we were taught not to think about things, not to think things through and not to process them, but just to go out there and sit with them and listen uh, and look and then look again and see what emerged in the outer landscape and then in the inner landscape, knowing that they reflect each other. Mm. And so the the connection that was formed and the, the shifts in my own awareness of things and the relationships with what was around me was unpredictable because some days I just sit there expecting things to happen and nothing would. I could feel that like there's this wall between me and the natural world and other days, you know, I just did something unexpectedly and I drop into this amazing state, which again, it's not something special and apart from what anyone else can experience. It was just something quite different for me and in that place you know I could literally hear the the rhythms of of the world and me being part of it and and what I learned there was things I couldn't really speak about because they're not at that level of knowing it's just again a knowing of who I was and my place in that world and my my obligation and compulsion and to find ways to share that and and to to bring others into their equivalent experience, knowing that it wouldn't be the same and knowing that I probably couldn't take them to that same place. How do I do that here on the central coast? You know, I'm discovering national parks here and, and the places where I can, you know, take people on, on their journey to see what they might find. Mm. Yeah. And it's like when you've had that sort of experience, you can't unknow it, you can't unfeel it and you can't pretend that it never happened you know it's like there is that compulsion to that there's something there's something more and that you have to keep moving forward with that you can't go no that that's too hard I don't know what that means I'm gonna leave it behind and forget about that experience it's it is a compulsion after that yeah for me the the whole process where we have so much focus on thinking you know, over time, our thinking crystallizes into what we believe, whether we think something positive about ourselves or negative, you know, that's what we come to believe. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, our beliefs ultimately manifest our reality, whether those beliefs are true or not. You know, we will live our life according to what we believe mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with knowing, you know, we, I, I went out there believing a whole lot of things about who I was and what my journey was and what this course might be. Uh, but those experiences um, shifted from uh, a cognitive believing, uh, a knowledge-based thing, 
to something that sits somewhere else. Yeah, and I, yeah. I guess you could call it wisdom. Yeah. Because yeah, um, it's, it's relevant and lives in us all yeah. places, all times, all situations. It's always relevant. Whereas yeah. knowledge is time specific, situation specific. Mm, um, and we can gather it. Knowledge is good. That's a really great distinction, actually. Yeah. That's a really great distinction. Do you want to say that again? Well, yeah. So um, in the shamanic work, we have a dreaming wheel which we journey around based on the four directions. When we go to the north, that's the realm of the mind. And that's where, you know, we gather through our thoughts and our thinking, we form our beliefs. Uh, and they they hold the knowledge that we gather from our life experience. Yeah. And you know, knowledge is important because it can solve a lot of situations. It can help us make decisions. When we go around to the south, that's where we find our intuitive wisdom. And wisdom is, you, you can't get it from a book directly. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be integrated through some meaningful experience usually whether it's uh, out in nature or a connection with a human being. Um, knowledge can trigger it, but in the end it can't deliver it. Yeah. Uh, and that wisdom is relevant. Um, always. Always, all places, all times, all situations. And, um, you know, the, the thing in... And knowledge is situational. So if you have that, yeah. the knowledge about something specific, that doesn't necessarily translate into automatically knowing something else yeah however the wisdom carries through with everything that's an awesome distinction yeah in a coaching situation you know I might have knowledge of how things might happen when these parameters are in place but it might not be relevant or valid at all in another coaching situation totally wisdom that's underneath and behind you know that that journey that's going to have relevance and you know, um, meaning irrespective of the context, mm. irrespective of what's going on. It's and back, back to volleyball, like you had the knowledge because you've had the experience playing, you've worked with the coaches, you know how to develop skills, but then you also had the wisdom of how to support these athletes and help them bring in those other aspects of themselves to make it a more whole, their whole person being in this team working towards this dream yeah i think and a key aspect of that wisdom was acknowledging that i don't have all the answers this team doesn't have all the answers we are going to end up in situations where we will know not what to do mm. and that's where we need to you know trust these notions of who we are and, and what we're here to do mm. that answers will emerge that are right Mm. Um, and when we make poor choices and make mistakes or things don't work out, then doesn't make it, you know, wrong or bad. And we took the whole good, bad, right or wrong polarities out of there um, and started asking, again, different questions because ranking things or, or labelling them or judging them good or bad, right or wrong, didn't help. Um, so we went with something that's non-judgmental, like, you know, is it moving us closer to who we want to be and where we want to be or is it moving us away from that? Um, and that was a black or white answer um, and it didn't yeah. have any judgment and around. And an individual as well. Yeah. yeah, and that would be really helpful for, you know, if 
most of us individually in the world were doing that rather than judging each other for this or that, you know. I mean, there's so much judgment in the world at the moment. It's Mm. crazy. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's important that we actually look at all this stuff that is making people uncomfortable so we can actually use our collective wisdom to move through, through that. Yeah, we still need to discriminate and discern. Discern, you know, yeah. Being non-judgmental doesn't mean you're okay with everything. No, God, no. And, you know, it's... You know, I, can I talk about that a little bit more? Because this was a really, really big thing that I learned. I don't know when, maybe a couple of years ago. It was like that I've always considered myself non-judgmental which has, you know, I think I've always been brought up, you know, it's not good to judge people and, you know, accept people as they are and all that kind of stuff. But there's the problem with that and the way that I interpreted that was judging people's bad. So you shouldn't judge people, which also meant that I um, gave people opportunity to hurt me that I shouldn't have because I wasn't judging them until I learnt the word discernment. And discern the way I just define discernment for me is it's like I'm not judging if they're right or wrong, good or bad. I'm saying, is this situation or this person okay for me right now? If it doesn't feel right, my discernment is that's not good for me right now and you move away from it. Yeah, we, we need to be able to draw a line in the sand and so and know where the point is, you know, enough or I'm not going there. That's not okay. Um, And, you know, for me, when I I struggle with judgment just like everyone else because there's so much happening in the world where people are doing crazy things that are hurting all of us. Um, And, you know, I consider, I think of the archetype, sage, spiritual leaders across history, you know, I don't need to name them, you know, the, 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 the saints and the masters, um, who confronted with a situation like this, again, they wouldn't say necessarily it's good or bad, right or wrong, mm. but they would know how to proceed and what they would condone and what they wouldn't yeah. um, and what they would support and what they wouldn't. Mm. And, yeah. you know, if they were given the responsibility to look out for the welfare of others, they might, you know, put in a boundary or stop something uh, and say, well, you know, you don't have the right to to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, accepting everything isn't okay. Mm. You think about some violent person comes after your family. You might be a non-violent person who doesn't ever condone hurting anyone else, a pacifist. But if they come, if they come after my family, I'm putting myself between them and the person. Mm. And if they are going to hurt us, well, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop them. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make me a violent person. No. It means again, I draw it's, a line. It's, it's, yeah, it's like where where is that discernment? And and then it also goes back to those default things that are already programmed, right? You know, it's like this is my boundary, um, this is important to me, and so, you know, if that boundary is crossed, then I will defend. Yeah, yeah. we've got to defend our values. It doesn't yeah, mean we have to impose them on other people. Yeah. And that's an important distinction yeah. to make. Yes. Imposing values onto others is very different to defending your own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the world isn't going to evolve and become a better place um, unless, you know, we, we defend the values we believe in. 
and the key thing is we live them fully and express them in all we do um, and not expect others to to buy into it just because we believe that. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, something we see that's that social media is making hard because everyone's suddenly got a platform um, and everyone's telling everyone else what they should do and what they should think. Mm. Uh, and it just creates more unrest um, and stirs stirs the population up. Um, and it doesn't give you space to figure it out yourself, right? Yeah. You know, because it's like bombard, bombard, and then people are looking outwards for the answers rather than taking the space to go inwards for the answer again. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the question is where are we seeking our guidance these days? Mm. And unfortunately <laughs> it's a lot of the time on social media. Yeah. Not what I'd recommend. No. <laughs> no. Well, thank you, Indra. Look, that was a fascinating conversation. And I'm sure, I'm sure, like, even though we were talking about Olympians and working with high-level athletes and kind of the shamanic world, it's like, you know, bringing those concepts into, like, real life and what's going on today are totally, totally relevant. So, you know, I hope everyone learnt something and, and found a new tool or a new perspective or a new thought of, of how they can just create some of that space for themselves to you know, maybe ask themselves some of those questions that, that Indra brought up. So can you, can you tell people how they can find you? And, and you do have an e-book as well. So if you can tell people that want to kind of have a little dig into this a little bit more. Um, well, I have a, um, a Facebook page which is called Earthing Soul. For anyone interested in the shamanic side of things, again, it's, you know, it's just a really a journey of finding yourself using nature as, as its guide. You don't need any, there's no dogma. There's no previous experience needed. Um, I have a book, um, which is a, a story about human consciousness um, in a parallel world where our consciousness is represented by five gods. It's called The Five Gods, and that's available on Amazon. It's an ebook. You can just um, go onto Amazon and, and find that. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm here local in the central coast for individuals looking to, to do some personal work. I also work online. Uh, I do some medicine crowd readings with, with my own stuff for people seeking some intuitive guidance as well. Do you do online sessions for that as well for people who aren't at the central coast? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. great. And so that can they just contact you through Earthing Soul? Is that the best way to contact you? Yeah, or I can share my mobile number if that's appropriate. Mm, maybe your email. Have you got an email? You've got an email. Yeah. What's your yeah. email? Yeah, it's just my name. So it's indra.rainpoo at gmail.com. Um, maybe we can put a link up there somewhere. I will, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, it'll be in the in the notes on, on the podcast and under the YouTube. So, um, yeah, so if people want to contact you, that they can. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to chat. Yeah, it's been lovely. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye for now. Bye. If you loved or learnt something in this episode, share it and don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you next week's Awakening Conversation. Have a wonderful week.